0: The following is a message by Dr. Peter Jones from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. Well, some of you don't know who I am. I'm the only scholar here (laughs) in this institution. At least that's what my title says. I'm the scholar in residence. What are you other guys doing here? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, it's my joy to uh, every semester get to address you, and uh, I do so today uh, seeking to honor the brief that I was given though I'm cheating to preach on wisdom literature but uh, Dr. Kim didn't say in which testament you should find wisdom literature and since I taught New Testament here for many years I did cheat and I look for wisdom literature in the New Testament especially since Ephesians one seventeen expresses Paul's desire that God give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. So wisdom, yes, it's a particular genre in the Old Testament, but it really is a focus, an important one in the New Testament. The New Testament wisdom comes from the Old Testament. Listen to this phrase. Paul says we speak of God's secret wisdom. In, well, I, I guess they translate secret the phrase en mysterio, in a mystery, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Now, this hidden wisdom does not mean the ancient hidden wisdom, the hidden ancient pagan mysteries recently talked about in Dan Brown's recent book, The Lost Symbol, where on page 491 you actually discover what the lost symbol is. It's there in plain sight, sitting on all the altars of Masonic temples, and on page 491 he tells us what it is, the ancient mysteries and the Bible are the same. Beware of this rising movement called mystical Christianity, which is seeking to claim Christianity for a very, very different idea of truth. But when Paul uses the term mystery attached to wisdom, he means wisdom that is implicit in the Old Testament, that is revealed through the Spirit's work on the apostles to make that clear and known. Or as Augustine said, novum in lateret et in novo vitus pateret. You know what that means? The new is latent in the old, and in the new, the old becomes patent. Isn't that Beautiful. Of course, we have then the apostolic ministry taking the, the wisdom of the Old Testament that is in a certain sense mysteriously revealed in many ways, in many ways and making it latent and clear. So, uh, we want wisdom. And interestingly, to have wisdom and to know God's will are essentially synonyms. Colossians 1.9 says this, that you may be filled with all the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom. So knowledge of God's will and spiritual wisdom are synonyms. You know, we don't arrive at church every Sunday with wheelbarrows full of scripture. Because scripture gives us the fundamental principles, but we need wisdom to take that mystery now revealed and apply it to a thousand different things. And so wisdom literature, as I see it, consists of giving us this ability to apply scriptural revelation to the details of life, which brings me to my text, Ah. You thought I was just going to give you a lecture? No, this really is a sermon. And I would like to read to you the text that will be the focus of my remarks, which is Romans 12, 1 through 2. Romans 12, 1 through 2. This is God's word. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy ...and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind... ...for the goal, this is my translation, of discerning what is God's will... ...what is good and acceptable and perfect. If it's true that wisdom is another way of speaking about knowing God's will then here in this text we have the key or one of the keys to what it means to know wisdom. Let me just quickly say that in these two verses we reach a high point in Paul's writing of the Epistle of the Romans. Chapters 1 through 11, Paul describes in verse 1 here of chapter 12 as the mercies of God. He has gone out of his way to make clear Soteriology, the mystery of the gospel from the Old Testament, he says in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 2. These are the mysteries of God. And they reach a point now of practical application with the little word therefore, un. So chapters 1 through 11 now apply themselves to, and this is what I'm suggesting, to The discerning of God's will. That's the goal, says Paul here in this second verse of Romans 12. For the goal of discerning what is God's will. What is good and what is acceptable and perfect. Now, to do this, there are two other things in these verses that I want us to focus on. There is, first of all, the presentation of our bodies as living holy sacrifices. The second thing is the transformation and renewal of our minds. And with those two things, you see, we can discern God's will on the basis of the mercies of God. So I want to look at those two things, holy bodies and transformed minds as the keys to knowing God's will. Some believe that the Roman Empire collapsed through lead poisoning. It's true. Because they cooked everything in lead pots and probably killed themselves. But rather, Edward Gibbon in 1776, while you people being very naughty, trying to un- undermine the British Empire, wrote a book, The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. And uh, obviously, he identified it as a moral collapse. And, you know, this text and Romans was probably one of the significant reasons that brought down the Roman Empire. Augustine himself became a Christian reading Romans. In particular, Romans 13, 13 through 14, where he read not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual excess and lust, not in quarreling and jealousy. Rather, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the desires of the flesh. If Paul is telling us we need to have holy bodies, this is a very difficult time to be holy. But you know what? When Paul wrote Romans, at that same time, Petronius, a Roman courtier, wrote a play containing bawdy episodes of debauchery, prostitution, orgies, homosexual, and hermaphrodite trysts, gay marriage, and pedophilia. And so holiness has never been easy to live out, and especially now as our culture looks more and more like the perverse culture of the pagan Roman Empire. And if we're ever going to save things, we'll have to do what the early Christians did, live with holy bodies. This, says Paul, is our priestly service. These wonderful references to the Old Testament through verbs and phrases like present and a living sacrifice, acceptable to God, spiritual priestly service. We need to see our lives as that of priests offering to God this Service of holy bodies. Why bodies? You know, we're big on ideas. We love to give to the Lord our visions, our ambitions, and so on. But God wants our bodies. And I think it's because, of course, nobody likes hypocrites. And our speech has to be backed up by our behaviour. And also, of course, because we're not Gnostics. We do not believe that the body is an accident from which we should be delivered uh, at some moment and a return to spirit. The body is a beautiful thing. It's created by God. And so our bodies are part of what God is doing in his purposes for the world. Salvation, the mercies of God, presupposes actually soteriology, presupposes cosmology. And so God is focusing in salvation on a previous cosmological setting of physical creation and physical bodies. That's why we are actually saved through the physical body of Jesus. Take, eat, this is my body. Christianity like a police novel, doesn't begin with a spiritual idea or a beautiful piece of poetry, but a missing body. Isn't that interesting? The body is front and center, but it has to be a holy body, not the kind of notion of holiness that we get from Mother Teresa. But again, a notion of holiness, there's an expression of biblical cosmology, how the world has been structured. I like to think of God's creation of matter and setting it out in distinct parts as God, in a certain sense, sanctifying the elements that he makes to have function and purpose and their own place in order to bring about God's purposes for his physical creation. That's what holiness means, you see. It means set apart for a special task. That's why we can call God holy, because God is set apart from us. The famous creator-creature distinction is the very basis of our understanding of holiness. That's why Jesus tells us, pray our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. You see, we remind ourselves that God is transcendent. He cannot be confused with the things he's made. And so to render him holy, we recognize him as the father who is alien in heaven, who nevertheless loves us. And that's true for us. We need to find our places in this world to bring glory to God. I'm going to use a four letter word, submission. You know, we were not so happy with that notion, uh, especially when it seems to be only constantly applied to wives who must submit to their husbands. But I think the whole word and its use in the New Testament, which is vast, applies to everybody. We all have to submit. To magistrates, to church leaders, to employers, to husbands, to parents, to God, to the law, to Christ. Because the cosmos itself is holy, and we gladly submit to those holy structures. But because the body is so important, its unholy use is uh, very much on the lips of New Testament writers. Especially with regard to perverted sexual use. And I would include in that, of course, internet pornography. I've read that 40% of pastors are hooked on internet pornography. And I may be speaking to somebody here who is so obsessed like that. And I want to encourage you to rethink what it means to be a priest offering one's own body as a living sacrifice Holy, acceptable to God in this area like all other areas. Why holy bodies? Well, it's a necessary implication of who we are. Be holy as I am holy. And it's a noble calling. Remember what the cherubim cry in Isaiah 6:3: Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You see, we participate in the expression of that glorious holiness as we understand what that means for us. Having the name Jones uh, can be a good thing, sometimes not. Jim Jones and the uh, spiked uh, juice that they drank and committed suicide that's one of my cousins. The other one is uh, Lloyd Jones um, of Westminster Chapel. And I remember reading recently that there was a a woman, a, a, um, a fortune teller, whose sort of office was not far from Westminster Chapel. And every Sunday she'd see hundreds and hundreds of people, and young people in particular, walking towards this church. And one Sunday she said, "I've got to go." So she did. She slipped in at the back, and she heard Lloyd Jones. If you've ever heard a prophet, as I did. It was Lloyd-Jones. And you know what? She became a Christian because she said she heard for the first time clean power. You know, we may not say too much, but do we have that sort of clean power that can really change things from the inside? Well, the second thing, and I'm out of time, (laughs) is transformed minds, a big issue. So you present your body of holiness and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. Conformity to the world today is endemic to the evangelical movement. I won't go into it, but there is a tremendous amount of intimidation going on, by the way, And you know that some of you have been in state universities where the intimidation almost reaches the point of physical violence. And so conformity has become something of uh, a normal expression of Christian kids on the campus. And so I don't stand up in judgment as such, but I know that conformity is not the answer. We need to have the vision of the culture that Paul had as blind, foolish, evil, animated by Satan. The culture has a mind of its own, and it's not for the purposes of God. It's not to say we don't see the good things that are produced because people are made in God's image, but the message of the culture is the message that will go against the purposes of God. So we need a renewed, transformed mind. What does Paul mean by that? In order to discern, he says, what is the will of God? How do you discern the will of God? How do you get a transformed mind? He uses the term documazine. And Steve Bohr assures me, as I already concluded, that it does mean to discern. He uses this phrase in Romans 1.28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge documazine, to discern God, God gave them up to In an undiscerning, our translations say debased mind, to do what to do, what ought not to be done. So an undiscerning mind doesn't do the will of God, a discerning mind does. But interesting, you see, that throws us back to what Paul says about the mind programmatically in Romans 1, which I think is a crucial place to understand what Paul means by the transformation and renewal of the mind, I'm thinking especially of those dynamic 25 words that you find in Romans one twenty five, where Paul says, and this statement, this one phrase I put, at least on the level with Descartes' Cogito Ergo Sum or Einstein's E equals MC squared. they exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creation rather than the creator. If you want a transformed mind, you must understand the implications of what Paul is saying in that verse. He's basically saying there are only two kinds of minds. One, transformed that understands who God is as the transcendent creator and worships him as such and builds a whole worldview on that basis or another kind of thinking, a debased mind, he says, which rejects the notion of the creator, elevates the creation to the status of divinity where nature is divine and builds a whole worldview on that. This is the struggle, I believe, we're seeing today. We're living culturally in the struggle of these two kinds of worldviews, fighting for dominance in the culture. I was reading this morning on Al Moller's blog just a few moments ago, actually, about uh, the issue of boys wearing skirts to school. And administrators don't know what to do with this issue. Some applaud it, some I was shocked by it. I thought to myself, you know, this is not just sexual insanity. This is the overtaking of our culture and many cultures with this totally opposite view of who is God and what that means for human existence. When you get rid of the notion of God the creator, then, of course, as Paul shows as he develops, then you start worshiping images, and you practice perverse sexuality. In other words, if you want to get to the bottom of what's happening, as you take the gospel to this fallen world, take that notion to people that this is a radical worldview that is seeking to establish itself as truth, and there is one other truth that makes sense. And once you have that view of a renewed mind based on this totally other way of thinking about truth, I believe you will begin to understand what is the will of God. Today's version of the lie is mouthed by global politicians, United Nations documents defining the future of the planet by deeply spiritual Hollywood stars, by religious leaders, from all the world's religions and by self-proclaimed progressive evangelicals who have no sense of what Paul is talking about and are in many and varied ways buying the lie. And so we stand before a stark choice, and it's a choice between two systems. I call them Monism, or theism, or sometimes oneism, or twoism. And once we understand what the biblical worldview is, we can indeed give a powerful expression to the truth. But you know, and I'm done. We uh, we come with sin-stained bodies, don't we? Screwed-up minds, <laughs> needing to be washed. Needing our minds to be renewed, we long for purity, we yearn for wisdom, but when we look inside ourselves, we see filthy rags and folly. With holiness, we need to avoid moralism. With transformed minds, we need to avoid rationalism. How do we do it? Well, we depend upon the body of Jesus And the mind of Christ. The holy body of Jesus broken for us. As Hebrews 10, 5 and following describes it. Listen to this. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifice and burnt offerings. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. Jesus has become the Holy One of God in our place before us. And if we want holy bodies, it's because of him. And if we want transformed minds, it's because of the mind of Christ. Who understood perfectly the creator or creature distinction but in condescending love left behind his transcendent glory and humbled himself to the death on the cross. My prayer for you is the prayer that Paul had for the Ephesians. May God give you a spirit of wisdom and the revelation of knowledge in him of Jesus, who is our holiness and of Christ, who has become our wisdom. All flesh is grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of the Lord remains forever. You're dismissed. Copyright 2009 Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this broadcast on our website is preferred.